This is the first time me and Josh have done that, and I was like, watch the baby cry the whole time. But he was, <laughs> he was fantastic. Um, so we're in Hebrews chapter 7 this morning. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into this chapter. So Father, thank you. Um, thank you for these children. Thank you for the parents of this church that have brought their kids here to, to raise them in a way that they would know you, Father. Um, so just thank you for the parents, for, for your grace upon us, and uh, I, I just I, I thank you for the hearts that you've given um, the, the members of this church to, to come around the families that have kids, to, to step up and um, provide um, encouragement and direction. And um, Lord, I just thank you for, for the people of this church as we raise kids here, Lord. Um, so I just pray that your hand would be upon this message this morning, that it would be um, your voice guiding in Jesus' name, amen. Um, so we did this in the first service. Um, obviously this weekend, hold on, oh, I have a Gatorade. Um, so this weekend is Memorial Day, also known as the three-day weekend. Um, but, but I think it's important as we, as we look at Memorial Day, um, and we did this in the first service, I thought it was nice to honor those that have served. So if you're in here this morning and you served or are actively serving, could, could you stand so we could honor you this morning? And, oh, if you, if you could stay standing, um, I just want to pray for you guys. Um, because there's a lot of times where, where we have people come up to us and they're like, oh, thank you for, for serving the Lord. And and the only way that all of us get to serve the Lord is because of the people that protected our freedom to be able to serve the Lord. So I think it's important that we pray for you guys as, as you, um, you put your lives on the line to, to protect our freedom to serve. So, so Father, I pray for, for the men and women in here that served, and I thank you for their service, for, for their um, willingness to, to put their lives on the line to protect our freedoms, Father. Um, I just pray blessings upon them and, and for those that have sacrificed their lives um, in, in the line of protecting us, Father. Um, just I, I thank you for their sacrifice and for their dedication, um, not only for their country, but, but for your name, Lord, that, that we would continue to have the freedom to share the gospel. It wouldn't be possible without them, Father. Um, like, like all of the warriors we see in the Bible, they, they're still here today, Father, um, warriors for your name. So I just lift them up this morning. Um, and, and I thank you for them, and I just pray blessings upon them, Father, and for the families in here that have lost loved ones or, or have loved ones that are, have served or are actively serving, that you would surround them with peace and grace and love, Father. So I thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen. So Hebrews chapter 7. Um, before we jump into Hebrews chapter 7, it's important that we go back to Genesis chapter 14 to get some of the um, backstory on what's going on. Um, for those of you that knew Aaron was supposed to teach this week, I'm not Aaron. I know you might be like, he got younger. <laughs> um, Aaron, Aaron got sick. Um, that's what he said, at least. Um, <laughs> so, no, just kidding. If you see, but, but honestly, if, if he is um, sick, and you happen to see Aaron out at a picnic or something today, please text me. <laughs> I have to bring that before the elders. Uh, no, I'm just playing. <laughs> yeah, I think he, he actually is sick. So um, he texted me at 6 o'clock last night and said, hey, bro, I'm not going to make it. So, so here I am. Um, 
So I do have the honor of sharing this morning. We're going to get through this. Uh, Hebrews 7 is a thick chapter. Uh, your head's going to hurt like mine did last night. Um, there's a lot here. But we start in Genesis chapter 14, uh, verse 15. It says, During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all of the goods and brought back his relative lot and his possessions, together with the women and other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer, yeah, that's wrong, and, and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came, to, came out to meet him in the valley of Shiva. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Genesis chapter 14 is a chapter about the family history of the origins of Israel. Right? It tells the story of how Abraham's uh, nephew Lot was swept up into the military um, during the ancient world and how Abraham played a role in that history himself. Lot and Abraham had parted company. Uncle Abraham had promised um, Lot free reign to choose land wherever he wished, and he chose the Valley of Siddam. Right? Today, it's known as the Dead Sea. Today, you'd be like, why would you ever choose land in the Dead Sea? Um, but, but at the time, it wasn't dead. Rather, it was lush, fertile. It was a fertile valley reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. So Lot chose land there. It settled in Sodom, the, the sin city of antiquity. And then a day came when a messenger arrived to the tent of Abraham, and he brought terrible news with him. Right, A coalition of kings from the east had invaded and taken over Sodom, enslaving the inhabitants there, including Lot. So here's Abraham being told news that his nephew had just been enslaved. Abraham immediately organizes a rescue party. His immediate response is, we're going to go get him. In a brazen display of faith and courage, he caught up with the raiders. He attacked them by night, defeating them and recovering not only his nephew, but all of the wealth and citizens of Sodom. However, the most unusual part uh, or portion of the scripture took part on the way home from the journey, right? Um, it was here that Abraham was met by a new figure, a mysterious priest-like king known as Melchizedek. Um, the scriptures tell us that they met um, that Melchizedek bringing bread and wine and a blessing, that Abraham rewarded him with a tenth of all of that. Um, Melchizedek is not mentioned again. The rest of Genesis or throughout the rest of the historical books of the Old Testament. No Melchizedek. Um, and although there's a veiled prophecy in the psalm concerning him, the significance of the figure is, is, un, is an all unsolved mystery. Like, there's not like, okay, here's this guy. He shows up here in Genesis chapter 14. Melchizedek, who is he? He must be great because Abraham gives him this stuff. Who is he? Like, there's a, it's a mystery throughout the Old Testament. And then that brings us to Hebrews chapter 7 when that mystery is unpacked, right? Like the writer of a good detective story, the writer of Hebrews draws out a character from the Old Testament that many might see as insignificant, right? He brings a, that character into real prominence. I don't know about you guys, but I like watching a good mystery movie. When, when you sit there the whole time, like I like watching them. My wife would tell you she hates watching them with me because I sit there the whole movie and I go, oh, it's him. And then another guy comes on the screen like, oh, I was wrong. It's definitely him until finally I'm like, oh, I was wrong. Um, like, it's always like the janitor or something, right? Like, it's like, oh, that guy in the beginning they showed for two seconds. 
my my least favorite is when you guess the whole movie and you're like, oh, it's got to be that guy. And in the end, it's the main character, and you're like, why'd they do that? Like, I spent the whole movie guessing all these side characters, and then it was just the main guy anyway. Um, so, so here's the, the writer of Hebrews drawing out this story and, and bringing to light Melchizedek, bringing him into prominence after everybody's like, who is this guy? Right? The writer of Hebrews felt that the history of Melchizedek was important because many Jews were struggling with the idea that Jesus didn't come from the priestly line. They're, they're struggling. They, they were interested in the background. Right? Uh, many Christians from a Jewish background were interested in Jesus as their high priest. Here he is preaching and they believe him and yeah, yeah, we, we understand, we believe this guy, but they were having a problem because of the significant intellectual objection of um, the idea that he wasn't from the priestly line. We, man, we believe he's the Messiah, but he doesn't fall in line with this priestly line. He doesn't come from the priestly tribe of Levi. He doesn't come from the priestly family of Aaron. Right? The, the writer um, to the Hebrews wanted to remove these intellectual problems that they were having. That, that it was stopping them from, from really getting to know Jesus. The, the intellectual hang-ups were stopping them from continuing in their maturity with the Lord. They're like, man, we, we know that we're watching him do all these signs and wonders, but, but he's not from that line. And he's like, stop letting that get you hung up in advancing in your maturity with the Lord. And it's the same thing today. Like, There's a lot of us that we get caught up in these things, and we're like, well, I don't, I don't know about that. And we start questioning, and it might be an intellectual um, issue, and we're like, ah, I, but it's stopping us from advancing further with the Lord. And he's like, do not let these things stop you from advancing with the Lord. Like, move on your relationship. Um, so that brings us to verse 1. It says, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. So the, the theme of the epistle to the Hebrews is what? It, it's on the sign behind me. It says Jesus is better. Right? We've read in the first chapters of, of Hebrews that he's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the rest um, of what was promised by Joshua. Um, like, he is better. Um, so in the last several chapters, we see that he is a better high priest. That's the narrative that's changing is, first, he's better than the angels, he's better than the prophets, and now he's the better high priest, comparing him to the other high priests. This automatically brings, brings an objection, though. How can Jesus be a better priest if he is from the tribe of Judah? Because priests don't come from the tribe of Judah. All priests in the Old Testament were required to be from the tribe of Levi, and specifically the descendants of Aaron. The answer to this objection will be that Jesus is of a priesthood that predates that of Aaron, one that goes all the way back to Abraham. Is anybody's head hurt yet? <laughs> it's a lot. Um, now, we don't know a lot about Melchizedek. We're going to learn a little bit about Melchizedek this morning, though. He emerges from the pages here uh, for, with a brief encounter uh, with Abraham, pronounces a blessing, accepts his gifts, and then disappears again into the pages of history. Like, where'd he go? Um, so let's learn a little bit about Melchizedek. While we don't know much, we do know a couple things. One, we know his name, right? That, that's stated here in Hebrews 7, his name. By the translation of his name, king of righteousness, 
The name Melchizedek is a compound of two Hebrew words which have been joined together. Melech is the Hebrew word for king, and then Zedek means righteousness. What's in a name, right? When we name children, it's often because we like the sound of it. Um, but, but in the ancient world, names had a lot of meaning behind them. I mean, I'm sure at some point they were like, oh, I, I like that name. But it was also about what is the meaning behind that name? What is the, because the name get told a lot about the character of the person, right? So when you're naming a, a son back then, it was about, okay, what, what is the character of him? What, what, how is he going to be classified? Um, so they would name their son or their daughter with a name of importance, with meaning, um, today, we do generally go based on what sounds pretty or what sounds nice. So, and I told the story in the first service, when, when we um, had our son, he was baby Collins for the first day in the hospital. Um, they just, they were like, guys, you can't leave until he's got a name. I'm like, all right. We had this short list of names, um, and we were like, all right, we just got to pick one. And, and so we just chose the one that we felt was the most fitting to, to how we saw him, and we ended up naming him Beckham. Um, which didn't have a ton of meaning behind it, but I didn't think about the, the questions that would come later. Um, every time somebody goes, oh, what's his name? I tell them, and then they go, oh, you really like soccer? And I'm like, no. <laughs> They're like, oh, that's cool. You named after David Beckham. I'm like, I don't know anything about David Beckham. <laughs> uh, uh, we get Odell Beckham sometimes. Like, there's always like, it's not just like, oh, you just named that because you liked it. It always has to have a meaning behind it. And that's immediately what people think um, because names do have meaning. This is why you occasionally see a person whose name is changed, right? We, we saw that with Abraham. His name was changed from Abram, which meant father of high places, to Abraham, which meant father of the multitude. Um, and then other names, like when it comes to, to naming your kids, originally I, I was going to bring up a list of names that had like negative meanings. Like some of you probably named your kids these things. And I was like, people are going to leave uh, because nobody wants to see their kid's name on the list and go, okay. <laughs> um, but it is important as you choose a name, what is the meaning behind it? Um, so I was looking at names and after I was like, okay, scratch that idea. I just ended up looking up the name of Aaron. Um, and the name Aaron means strong. And uh, he already texted me because I said this in the first service. Um, so for some errands, that's true. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Aaron, Aaron, Aaron was at our house this weekend loading wood, and I was like, Aaron, you're a lot stronger than I thought you were. He, he had, like, the big logs. Yeah, so, so it's fitting. But as you name your kids, think about that. Like, as people see them, I'll, I'll, I won't tell you what the name is, but I was looking at the names, and one of the names... Um, was uh, Brickhead, and I was like, all right, well, make sure you know that before you name your kid that. <laughs> um, so, so we know his name, we know the meaning behind his name, that, uh, that Melchizedek, the name has importance to it, means righteousness. Um, so then we go on to King of Salem, the second thing we know, we know his domain. This is, um, so it talks about Salem. Salem was evidently one of the ancient names for the city of Jerusalem. Before the city became the capital of um, Israel, it belonged to the people known as the Jebusites. So it was Salem for them. Their city was alternately known as Jebus and Salem. Its name today reflects a composite of those two, Jerusalem. Um, but remember, names have meaning. And the meaning um, of this name uh, is 
the city of peace, which is ironic because Jerusalem is anything but the city of peace. Right throughout history, there's been there's been war after war, a history of war, a history of conquest. Why would it be the city of peace? Like why? That's a mistake, but it's not, right? Because even though it is the city of destruction when it comes to war, it's an interesting name because it's where the Prince of Peace brought himself. He presented himself there. Um, that's the one notable exception to that city that brought peace. It's where the Prince of Peace came to present himself. It was the city where the God of Peace located his temple, ultimate peace from Jerusalem. Here's the point. The kingship of Israel could only trace their roots back to David. The priesthood of Israel could only trace their roots back to Aaron. Um, But there was a priest king residing in Jerusalem, the city of God, long before the time of either Aaron or uh, David or Aaron, and he is a pattern of God's true priest king. So, so we know, okay, so Melchizedek has meaning in his name. He's from Salem. And then let's go into the genealogy. What is, we know his genealogy, right? It says in verse 3, without father, mother, without genealogy. There you go. All right, let's move on. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, we, we do know his genealogy. That is exactly it without genealogy, right? Um, the past kings of Israel before the Babylonian captivity traced their genealogy back to King David. The priests of Israel traced their genealogy back to Aaron. Those priests returning from Babylon who could no longer give evidence of their genealogy were not permitted to serve any longer as priests. If you're like, I, I can't trace my genealogy, you were out because it had everything to do with what your family line was. The first king priest had no genealogy right here in Melchizedek. He appears from the obscurity out of the pages of history. We know nothing about his origins. We know nothing about his death. None of that's written. It's just this small section in um, Genesis 14 and then Hebrews 7. Um, So we don't know anything about his origins or his death. And in this, he is likened to the Son of God. Um, You might be thinking, wait a minute. Uh, Jesus had a genealogy. We, We know the genealogy of Jesus. How can you say he's like Melchizedek because Melchizedek had no genealogy? Well, the answer is found in the preexistence of Jesus, right? Though he had a human genealogy, he also existed before he was born, right? Um, He appears in the very beginning, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's Jesus in the beginning. No genealogy. Here's the point. The priesthood of Jesus is a better priesthood because he never had a beginning, and his priesthood has no end. Um, he will always be high priest. So if you want to compare him to the, pre- the other priests, which is what they were doing, okay, how is he different than the other priests? Look, the other priests have a beginning. We know when they were born. We know when they're going to die. They have a beginning and they have an end. Jesus has neither of those things. Let's move on to verse 4. Yeah, if you want to tell me my slides are bad, I, they got screwed up. It's part of, yeah. Uh, I complain about it a lot in the first service. Um, <laughs> I won't do that. I'll just pretend it's out there. Um, just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who became priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who declared to be living. 
One might even say that Levi, who collected the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek took, met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. And so the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood is first evidenced in the fact that Abraham gave him a tithe, right? A, a tenth of the spoils of the war. So why is, why is Abraham offering this tithe to Melchizedek, right? It's because Abraham recognizes him as the priest of the Most High God. Man, a- Abraham recognizes him. I should get paid for sponsoring Gatorade. <laughs> After it <get> sideways. <laughs> um, this stuff actually doesn't work as well as water. I thought it would. Um, so, so here's Abraham giving this, this tithe to Melchizedek, right? But now we come to the point of comparison. Both Melchizedek and the um, Aaronic priesthood are legitimate priests of God. This isn't downplaying those priests and saying, oh, they're not serving the Lord because they were. But it's upplaying Melchizedek. This is bringing him above them, right? So, so you could say the Levitical priests um, received tithes from the, child, from the children of Abraham. They did receive tithes. But they never received tithes from Abraham himself, but Melchizedek did. Abraham went personally and gave tithes to Melchizedek. Um, verse 5, it says, they received tithes from the descendants of Abraham. 6 says, he received a tithe from Abraham. And then back to 5 says, the Israelites were commanded to give a tithe. This is important. So the, the Israelites were commanded to give a tithe. They're giving a tithe because they're commanded. Abraham voluntarily gave a tithe to Melchizedek. Not required. He wasn't required. He, he noticed, he was like, man, this is, this is the, the Lord's priest. This is the high priest. I'm giving him one because um, he deserves it. He is God's chosen priest. So, so he's giving voluntarily this tithe to Melchizedek, which, which now, okay, the, the section of Melchizedek is short, but there's a lot here. Why, why is Abraham the, the first father giving to Melchizedek? Verse 8 says, they are mortal subject to death, and then it also says he lives on. Um, we'll read verse 8. And the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. Melchizedek has no death. Um, they, can, they can be said to have paid tithes while being in the loins of Abraham, right? He never paid tithes to anybody. This, these are the contrasted differences between the other priests and Melchizedek. He didn't pay tithes to anybody. Um, Abraham was special to the Jews, right? He was literally the first father, the patriarch. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, was blessed by Melchizedek and then gave tithes to him. So, okay, you have these people worshiping Abraham as the first father, and here's the first father giving to Melchizedek. It's significant, right? Because the underlying principle of blessing, which is in verse 7, the principle is that the lesser is blessed by the greater. We see that principle illustrated in our relationship with God, that the lesser is blessed by the greater. Um, that happens a lot. Um, in our lives where, where we, we might say, oh, I bless you, um, a blessing. The blessing's coming from God. We, we, don't have the, we don't have the ability to do that. We're just, I'm praying that God blesses you. Because, because it's a principle of the greater blessing, um, the lesser. You, you might bless God in the sense that you praise his name, right? You, you might say, Lord, I, um, I, I'm going to praise your name. But you aren't able to do anything for God to assist him or help him. Or, or improve his condition. Like, there's none of this that we can do for God because he is greater than us. But on the flip side, he can do everything for us, right? He can bless us because he is greater. Um, 
And then verses 8 through 10 says, give it, uh, they give another reason why Melchizedek is a better priest than the sons of Levi. It is because um, they can be said to have paid tithes to Melchizedek in the sense that Abraham paid tithes um, and they were in the loins of Abraham. So they're in the loins of Abraham. Abraham's giving a tithe. So here you technically have the priest giving a tithe to Melchizedek. So you want to say, okay, are they on even ground? Well, they're giving tithes to him, so who's on even ground now? Moving on to 11. Are we having fun yet? This is just so fun. <laughs> um, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed. Um, he of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what um, we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So here, the, the principle here is that the Levitical priesthood was always meant to be temporary. It, it didn't bring perfection or completeness. It was always meant to be temporary. The reason we know it's supposed to be temporary is because the Old um, Testament scripture promised a future pre, uh, priesthood in Psalm 110. One who would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So they knew that this was supposed to come, that that, that Old Testament law wasn't supposed to be forever. The, the order of the Levites was never meant to be forever. Going back, um, it says um, about the change of the Old Testament priesthood. Now, if there's going to be a change in the Old Testament priesthood and such a change was promised in the Old Testament, then it follows that there's also to be a change in the law which mandated the Old Testament, uh, which would change the law how people were saved. If you're going to change the, the priesthood, then, then the law also changes with it how people are saved. This is why the, um, this is why the Lord could be from a, the tribe of Judah instead of the tribe of Levi, because there's this changing of the law. Um, is it a problem that Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi? Um, it says, he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. He's obviously not from the tribe of Aaron. He's not from the from the tribe of Levi. Um, the tribe of Judah had nothing to do with Aaron's priesthood. Um, the priesthood associated with the law of Moses. Therefore, according to the priesthood of Aaron and the law of Moses, Jesus could never be a priest. Why? Um, because he's not from the family line. That's, it, it was like, it had nothing to do with, were these people spiritual? Were they godly people? It was just, are they in line of the lineage to accept so if he is our high priest and it's not by lineage, then it must be by another principle. Um, it is not a problem that the new Melchizedek priesthood is not on the basis of the law of physical requirement, right? The priests of the Aaronic um, priesthood had no moral or spiritual qualifications to pass in order to become priests. There was nothing that they had to do to become priests. It was simply by lineage. That's ev evident in the Old Testament, right? Um, we see a couple times God struck dead two of the sons of Aaron for using improper methods of worship. He condemned the immoral acts of the sons of Eli who were turning the tabernacle into a brothel. The only requirements for the Aaronic um, priesthood was that the priest must also be able to trace back his ancestry to Aaron. That's it. 
Um, so then what was the requirement for the Melchizedek priesthood? If it has nothing to do with lineage. Um, can simply anyone claim to be a Melchizedek priest? That's what Mormons do. They claim to be of that priesthood. Um, so what is to stop such a claim? The answer is seen at the end of verse 16. Um, the requirement for belonging to the Melchizedek priesthood is the power of an indestructible life. I skipped, yeah. Um, so the power of an indestructible life is what's required, right? We read in the Bible of the death of Aaron, his sons, and of every other priest, but the scriptures are silent regarding the death of Melchizedek. And although Jesus died upon the cross, he rose again, right? It was, it was him rising that he demonstrated the power of an indestructible life in line of Melchizedek. Um, going on to 18 in our fun. Uh, for on the, on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment uh, because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it is not without an oath, and for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus had become the guarantee of a better covenant. He continues comparing and contrasting the two priesthood of the old covenant and the, the priesthood of the new covenant. Verse 18 mentions um, in what way was the law weak and useless? And it says uh, weak and useless. So, so that's our question is in what way was it weak and useless? Well, it was weak and useless in the fact that it did not accomplish um, that, which it was that which it mandated, right? The only thing the law could do was could condemn the, the transgressor of that law. You could just condemn them. But it could only drive men away from God. It, you're condemned like this is what you're doing wrong, and then it would drive them away. But Jesus was able to do it differently, right? In the new law, Jesus is able to do that in which the law could never do. He is the one who draws people closer to him, condemned of their sins. Man, you're, you're living wrong. You're living in sin. And then draws people closer to God. Furthermore, the priesthood of Jesus is a better priesthood because it was accompanied by an oath. We saw that in the last chapter, that when the Lord could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. 6.13, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. Um, going back to 18, so he did not do this lightly. He didn't do it often. We don't see Jesus swear by himself very often. Um, there were not a lot of oaths which the Lord swore by. But this is one oath, the Melchizedek priesthood, that he said, I am he, I'll swear by myself. The priesthood of Aaron was never accompanied by an oath, but the priesthood of the Messiah was. And this meant that Jesus is our guarantee that the Lord's promise of a better covenant um, has come to pass. 23 goes on to say, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able, to, able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he also lives to make intercession for them. Someone might want to advance the argument that the priesthood of Aaron was better because it had so many priests. They might say, oh, well, there was, 
There was hundreds of priests in that line. It's better because of the history of the high priest. Wouldn't you rather have a history of like a long lasting history than just one? Like you're depending on one priest and this has hundreds. Um, but the problem is the reason there were so many high priests in that lineage because they died, right? You had a high priest and, and they had a lifespan. They were born, they become priests, then they die and then they move on to the next one. Um, in Jesus' line, is, it's just Jesus. Um, I was saying in the first service, I, I wish that this is how our country worked. Um, we have the other, the other way where eventually we'll have hundreds of presidents, but wouldn't it be better if we didn't have to vote every four years and we could find the perfect one and he could just be doing the job forever? Like, like, like it would just, that's what Jesus is doing. Like, why would you need hundreds when you have the one perfect one? You don't need the rest. So, so that's what it's saying here is like, if you have Jesus, why, why did the other hundreds matter? Um, because you have others that are mortal. They grow old, they die. Then you need another and another. Jesus has no replacement. There is no replacement for Jesus, but none is needed. All right, when he died upon the cross, he rose from the dead and ever lives forever to perform his priestly duties. 26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, un, uh, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because uh, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. So this chapter is a lot of comparing. It's a lot of comparing the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of Christ. In this last one, it's a moral comparison, right? We have a high priest. It says he is holy, innocent, undefiled. The priests under the law of Moses did not have the personal character of the Son of God. It's not a dig on them, but, but they were people. Like how They couldn't have the um, character of the Son of God. So Jesus is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners in the sense that he's not sharing in their sin. Jesus is far superior in his character than any earthly priest. And this is so important. Um, I mentioned the first service that when it comes to priests, like, I don't know about you guys, but like, if I go on YouTube and I'm watching sermons, I generally watch the same pastor. I'm like, oh, I just like his teaching style. But it's important that, that as we're watching, that it doesn't become about the teacher, that it doesn't become about the priest, that it doesn't become about the person that we're watching, but it's about Jesus, that, that it's only him. He's greater than any earthly priest. And we've seen that throughout history where, where people think they're following Jesus and then, and then they go down with the ship if something happens to the priest. And you're like, really, you were following the teacher. You weren't following Jesus. Um, so as believers, we should, uh, we should glory in these passages. Like it's, this stuff is really kind of dry. But when it comes to these passages, we should be glorying in the exalting of Jesus, showing his superiority this is what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, The superiority of our Lord Jesus Christ is a topic that will not interest everybody. To many persons, it will, be see, it will seem a piece of devotional rapture, if not an idle tale. Yet there will be a remnant according to the election of grace to whom his, uh, this meditation will be inexpressibly sweet. That's so true today. 
You have the superiority of Jesus. And, and for a lot of us, it's like, man, I just want to stand in his glory. He is so superior. Like I think of the angels in heaven singing, holy, 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 just, just worshiping the, the Lord. And you're like, how could somebody not bask in the glory of his superiority? And then you look around at people that, that aren't walking with him. And it's like, man, I, I don't want to follow him. Like, why do I want somebody to tell me they're better than me? I don't, I don't want to follow somebody who says they're superior. That's like what it's saying. If not an idle tale, it'll seem a piece of devotional rapture. Don't want to, to witness the glory and superiority of Christ. So are we glorying in these passages? Are we in awe of the superiority and the power of Jesus? Um, in the New Age Church, right, sometimes we like to downplay the, the superiority, right? Um, Jesus is like, <laughs> sometimes you'll hear a pastor, he's like your little pal. He's like your friend. Like, just Jesus, your pal. Sure, he can be a friend. Like, Jesus, the, I like uh, the song, what a friend we have in Jesus. He can be a friend. But, but when it comes to that friendship, we better understand that that friendship isn't one of equality. That friendship isn't, oh, well, we're equal, and I tell him my problems, and I'll listen to his problems, and we're just kind of uneven. You're not. Our friendship with Jesus, he's superior, and we're down here, but we can still be friends. Um, I don't know. Some of us probably have friendships like that on earth, uh, that you're like, you have friends, and you're like, yeah, I know they're better than me. <laughs> um, Paul's still not here, but I mentioned Paul Bregley on the first service. I wouldn't say we're friends, but if we were, um, he'd be superior. Just in the way he dresses, I could never live up to that. <laughs> and then I have other friends like Aaron, and I'm like, yeah, we're, we're on the same level. <laughs> um, no, but it's true. Like, we have to know, even though it's a friendship, that Jesus is superior. We're friends at a stance that we're the inferior friend, but it's okay. He loves us the same, but we have to understand his superiority. It uh, goes on to verse 27. It says, Who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. This is totally unique. It's the only, Jesus is the only person that can do this, right? Um, a priest may bring a sacrifice. He might bring up a, a lamb and sacrifice at the altar, but Jesus was both the priest and the sacrifice, this is the best sacrifice because um, brought to God the Father by the best priest. Here, here Lord, it's me. I, I'm, he gave himself. He was the priest and the sacrifice. Um, Charles Spurgeon said this about um, Jesus being a sacrifice. Oh, this makes the sacrifice of Christ so blessed and glorious. They dragged the bullocks and they drove the sheep to the altar. They bound the calves with cords, even with cords to the altar's horn. But not so was it with the Christ of God. None did compel him to die. He laid down his life voluntarily, for he had power to lay it down and to take it again. That shows the power of Jesus. That, that he wasn't like the other priests offering an animal. He said, I am he. I'll offer myself. And he had the power to take it again. Nobody else could do this. Only Jesus. <clears throat> Um, for the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses. Under the law of Moses, the priests were always men with weaknesses, right? 
but Jesus is a son who has been perfect forever. Because he is a perfect high priest, he was able to offer himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sin, perfectly qualified to be our perfect high priest, perfected forever. Only Jesus. Which brings us back to our main point that we talked about in the beginning of well, what is Hebrews about? The, the main, Jesus is better. He's greater than all. Um, there is nothing, nobody greater than Jesus. Nobody can offer the sacrifice that Jesus offered. He was the only perfect person, the only one that could offer the perfect sacrifice. Now, this chapter is thick. Like, that, that's the end of 28. Um, Hebrews 7 is very thick. Like, my brain hurt trying to put this together. Uh, but it's important. Like, like, I was talking to Aaron about it. He's like, yeah, he's like, a lot of pastors just skip first, uh, chapter 7, move right into 8 because it's dry. And I was like, well, that's good to know. Um, so that's why I'm questioning his sickness. <laughs> but, but no, he's, he is really sick. We prayed for him in the first service. So, I, I, yeah, we need to see Aaron back next week. Um, we see the superiority and the power of Jesus in this chapter, and in that he still wants a relationship with us. That's so amazing. Like, we see his superiority, his power. He still wants to be our friend. That's the good news this morning. He wants a relationship with each one of us, regardless of how small we are compared to his glory. And then this morning, uh, the band could come back up as we close. Um, So this morning, as we look at his glory, as we look at his power, his superiority. Like maybe there's somebody in here that's like, I've never, I've never surrendered to the superiority of Jesus. I, I've never surrendered and, and just given him my life. But I'm sick of doing this my way. Um, so we're going to give that opportunity this morning um, to, to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to walk with the Lord. I, I, I want to walk um, in his power. I, I want what he has because I'm sick of doing it by myself. Um, and I was thinking about this yesterday as I was driving around. I don't know about you guys, but with the nice weather, there's like yard sale signs everywhere. Like, like I think on this road, there were three. <laughs> but no, there were a couple on the way to church this morning. Um, and the nice thing about yard sales, like I don't know about, does anybody in here like going to yard sales? Yeah, a couple of people. Some of you are like, I've never used, used stuff like that. <laughs> but for those of us that like yard sales, the best part about the yard sale is getting a good deal. Like, it doesn't matter if it's, like, $5. Like, I usually try to get a good deal. Like, I'll be like, did you take three? It's bad. I know if it's worth five, I should pay five. But part of the going to yard sale is the fun of getting a good deal, right? And that's why we go. But, but as we look for good deals, um, there's no better um, feeling than being like, yeah, I, I really needed that anyway, and I got it at a discount. Let me tell you, that's the deal Jesus is offering. We need it, and he's giving it a discount. There's no greater gift than the gift of Jesus, right? And, and it's free. That's that you don't have to negotiate. You don't have to, like, he's just giving it to you. Um, so, so when I came to Christ and admitted I was a sinner in, for, um, in need of forgiveness, right? In turn, he gave me his righteousness. What a trade. What a deal. I came into God's presence as a beggar and left as a joint heir with Christ, a friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. And it's that easy to be saved. It's, Lord, Lord, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I, I want your gift. But, but here's what I said in the first service. Sometimes we do that and we say, okay, it's just as easy. We're going we're gonna to bow our heads and, 
And if you want to accept the Lord, just raise your hand. And I think the problem with that is it leaves room for interpretation of, oh, that's me. I want to go to heaven. And we raise our hand and then we go, that's awesome. We can go to heaven. I raise my hand and then I can go back to doing what I was doing before I got here. That's great. There, there's no room for interpretation. It's yes, Lord, I, I want to, to accept you. I, I want to give up those sins in my life and please forgive me. But part of that forgiveness is saying, okay, God, I don't want this heart anymore. I, I don't want to go back to doing the things that I was doing. So, so maybe that's you this morning. You want that deal. You're like, man, I like a yard sale. I like a deal. I'm here for Jesus. You came in here full of sin, full of shame. The Lord has a deal for you this morning, right? He's willing to give you eternal life. If, in, all you have to do is ask for forgiveness. But, but in turn of asking for forgiveness... I want you to think about this seriously. Think serious about the decision you're making this morning. If that's you and you're saying, man, I, Lord, I, I want that forgiveness. It's not about raising your hand and going back with the same heart that you had, being the same person you were when you walked in. Right? It's about saying, Lord, I'm done with that old life. I'm done with those sins. I'm done with the things that were, that were consuming my life. I, I want to be with you. I want you to be Lord of my life. I, I want the desires of my heart to be the things that your heart desires. You know, that's the thing. A lot of times people get it confused when they say, Lord, um, give me the things in my heart. That passage that says the Lord will give you all the desires of your heart. And then we pray for silly things. We're like, why didn't God give me that? Because a part of that is that when you accept him, your heart is going to start desiring the things that God heart, God's heart desires. So if your heart is desiring the, the same things that God's desiring for your heart, then your ideas are going to align. And that's when he starts to give you the desires of your heart because he's like, yeah, your desires are already the ones I had in mind. So it's as easy as confessing your sins and believing in your heart. But if you do that this morning, you better be pre prepared for your life to look a lot different than it did when you came in. You're, you're ready to commit to serving him. It's a long road. Keep on keeping on. It doesn't just scare you away. I don't want anybody coming in here being scared or going, man, that's a lot. Because it is. But it's not to scare you away. It's to make you aware of the serious commitment you're making to following Jesus. And, and I think this is what's missing. A lot of times um, people go into church and, and the church might count and go, wow, we had 30 people saved today. Because they raised their hand. But if they didn't understand the commitment that they're entering into, the seriousness that, man, I am serving the Lord, then all they're doing is raising their hand. It's about saying, Lord, change my heart. I'm going to serve you from this day forward. And maybe you're in here and you're one of those people that raised your hand at one point and you didn't understand why. And you're like, man, I didn't take this seriously. I didn't understand the seriousness of committing my life to the Lord. And it means changing everything. That's the seriousness, but it's not to scare you away. It's to say, look, you can enter into this relationship with Jesus. He's superior. Just give it to him. Like, it's not to make your life harder. It's to make it a lot easier. Lord, I'm giving you everything. That's the serious commitment part. And then allow him to move through you. So we're going to bow our heads this morning. And if that's you and you're like, man, I want to enter into that relationship. I'm ready to make this commitment seriously offering that deal this morning. Um, it's as easy as saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry. You are a God and I believe you died on the cross for me. And I'm ready. I'm ready to, 
to stand for your name. I'm ready to be serious about walking step in step with you and allowing my heart to be transformed into the desires of your heart, Father. So as we do that this morning, if that's you and you're like, yeah, I'm ready. I want this journey. I, I want to make God the Lord of my life because he is superior. If you could just raise your hand while everybody has their head bowed. Is there anybody in here this morning that's ready? I see one. Anybody else? This is a serious commitment this morning. Your life is never going to be the same. Two. Yeah. Another one. This is serious commitment. Like, can we have a round of applause for them? Because, you know what, this isn't... This isn't about, oh, I felt something at church this morning, and, and now uh, I don't know what happened. Now I'm going back. Like, this is, this is your moment right here this morning that you're going to start walking with the Lord. And, and the people around you are going to go, what happened? What happened to them? They, they were so different. They went to, it's Sunday. They went to church one time, and now all of a sudden their life is different. It's going to happen. If you stay committed to the Lord, and you're like, Lord, I'm walking with you, they're going to see it. They're going to see, you're going to see the fruit. We talk about the fruit often in this church, about the fruit that God is going to provide in your life as you walk with him. Your life's never going to be the same, and it's not in a bad way. It's in the best way possible. That you, that you get to now serve the king, it's not a chore, it's an honor. So for the rest of us, um, as we're in here, if you're one of those that um, raised your hand, we have um, a, just a, a new believers pack for you. It's got a, a Bible and some other stuff for you to read. Um, and I'd love to pray with you. So if, if that was you, um, and if we have another elder or two that could come to the front and pray, um, we'd love to do that with you. So for the rest of us as we leave here this morning, the, the takeaway from chapter 7 is just, Lord, you are superior. Lord, I just, I, I think about those angels in heaven saying, holy, holy.